This semester, um, I think as you well know, yeah, let me just fix this. This semester, I think as you well know, we're working our way through um, this book, or you can call it, it's, it was a letter uh, to this church in Rome. We know it as Romans. And it's a letter that really kind of comes to us in two parts. That first part, that first half, chapters 1 to 8, Paul, the author of this letter, is really laying out what the gospel is. Gospel meaning good news about Jesus. And that second half of that letter, particularly chapters 12 through 16, he kind of flushes out, you know, what difference that makes. How do we live then in light of this gospel? Um, And I think, just as an aside, this order is important. I think moralistic religion often says, hey, if you live a certain way, God will reward you. He's going to maybe save you. The gospel flips that on its head. It says, God has saved us. Therefore, let's live a certain way. I think it's really interesting. We'll... I'll be making that point uh, a couple of times more uh, as the semester goes through. But we've been kind of averaging like a chapter a week. We're five weeks into the spring semester. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 11. So why don't you follow along with me? So what we read. Paul says, Therefore, right, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thanks for bringing us together on this Wednesday night. Thanks for giving us this word. Pray you would help us to see the one to whom all of these words point. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are sensitive and soft, ready to receive and to believe what it is you want to give to us tonight. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all, as we turn our attention to chapter 5, we see the first letter of the first verse in this chapter is this word, therefore. Therefore is a connective word. It links logically sentences, paragraphs, and ideas, showing some sort of cause and effect. Since, like, X is true, therefore, like, Y must follow. Last week, we saw that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we're justified by God as a grace, as a gift, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. That's sort of what we talked about last week. And you can hear that message again if you'd like. If you, if you missed it, you'd like to go back to it. Like, you can go check that out. We, we have it online. But here's the gist, and I'm going to be brief about this because I really want to focus on like, what we heard tonight. 
But the gist of this is this. God made us in his image, right, for the sake of imaging him. He's righteous. We're not. All have sinned. We fall short of his glory. There is now this gap between us. There's nothing that we can do to bridge this gap. The only way that you and I can be justified, which is to say declared righteous, to be all right in God's sight, is if God does something to save you and me. And he has. He's given us his son. His son who redeems us, who pays the price for all of our sins. And who is the propitiation, right? Who absorbs God's wrath. Like all that holy anger that God aims at our sin. Jesus says, yeah, he draws that big bullseye on himself and says, I will, I will take it. I will endure it. So you don't have to. Um, this unbridgeable gap, or elsewhere, uh, what the Bible calls this dividing wall of hostility, it's now gone. This is something God's done for you. He didn't have to do this, but he wanted to. You didn't earn this salvation. It's a gift. It cost him a lot, but it's offered to you freely. And the way that you get the salvation is not by working for it, but by humbly receiving it. We are justified, declared righteous, all right in God's sight, by faith. This sets us up for now what Paul is about to do here in chapter 5 and following. He says, Therefore, or since, right, like this is the idea, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. At this stage in this letter, Paul wants to explain what justification by faith means at a practical level. Like he's, it's almost he's like, I want to connect some dots for you. Here's what this means for you practically. Because we are justified by faith, or therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is the first, the main, or like that primary blessing or benefit that we get because of our justification. Our being declared all right. Peace with God is not just the end of hostility. If you ask me, like, how's my relationship with Megan? And I said, it's good. We're not fighting. You'd be like, I don't think you have a great relation. I don't think it's something's up, right? Peace with God is not just the cessation or the absence of conflict. It's better than that. And it's not just the forgiveness of sins, though it certainly entails that. Peace with God is way better than both of these. It's not just the absence of something. It's the presence of something much greater. It's what the Hebrews knew and called shalom. Right? That word shalom, we translate that peace, but it's much more than just peace. It's not just a ceasefire between enemies. Shalom, peace with God, connotes flourishing. means wholeness and delight. Shalom is knowing deep in your bones that God loves you. It's what we see when we jump to the end of verse 11. It means reconciliation. That's what peace with God means, reconciliation. We who were once God's enemies are now, thanks to Jesus, regarded as God's friends. And more than that, we're welcomed into his family. We are treated as full sons and full daughters of the king. We have this now because we are justified by faith. 
This peace with God, it's beautifully depicted for us this week in the stories that we're looking at in small groups. Right? These stories that Jesus tells. We're, we're looking at the story this week of a good father who has two lost sons. This youngest son, he wishes that his father was dead. He says, give me my inheritance now. I don't love you. I just want your gifts. Right? And the father gives it to him. But this youngest son, he goes and he wastes his inheritance on like reckless sort of profligate living. And he hits rock bottom, right? He's completely sort of dehumanized. He's eating like the pigs are eating better than him. And he just reckons, look, this is stupid. I could go back to my father's house and maybe hire myself out as a servant because that's better than this. But there is just no way. There's no way my father is ever going to take me back. Like, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to be his son again. So he makes his journey home, and his father sees him off in the distance. And rather than just sitting on the porch, sort of tapping his feet, being like, this is going to be good, he lifts up his, his skirt, and he runs to meet his son. And his son starts to get halfway through this apology and sort of like this you know, idea, hey, Dad, I want to be your servant. I'm, and his, his dad's just like, stop, stop. I love you. He's got his arms around his neck. He's kissing his cheek, right? And he clothes him and he restores him. He, he puts the best, like, he puts the best robe around him. He puts this ring on his finger. He puts shoes on his feet. He says, kill the fat and calf. My son who's lost is now found. We're having a party, right? This is a vision of what we have, right? When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, when we sort of walk across that bridge that Jesus has built for us, Peace with God. We are not servants in God's house. We are treated as full sons, as as full daughters of the king. You are all right now in God's sight. You are a part of this family. This, Paul says, is the grace in which we now stand. Verse 2. Right? This grace, it's not something that is like... It doesn't just come and go, right? It's not that we have like an occasional audience with the king. We're privileged to live in the temple and in the palace, as it were. Our relationship with God and to which justification has brought us, it's not sporadic, but continuous. It's not precarious, it's secure. We stand in this. We're living in it. It reminds me of Obama's daughter's like Malia and Sasha. Like there's a bunch of like world VIPs who would do anything just to have like one meeting with the world's most powerful man. But the sons, the daughters of like the president, they live in the White House. They have all the time access. And that's sort of what's being communicated here, right? You are brought into this right relationship. You are brought into the home. It's not like you have to like file a petition or like put in your request to meet with the king. Like you can meet him anytime. You're like, daddy, can you tuck me into bed? Like that's the kind of access that we have. Julia gave me a great picture of, the, of, of what we're talking about this week. She's like, you know how like maybe your, your dad or your mom, they're in a, an important conversation. They're, they're talking with friends or maybe they're in a business meeting, but then their phone rings and they look and they see it's their, their kid. And they say, hold on, I got to take this call. It's important. That's what we have. Because we're sons and daughters now of the king. We have peace with God. He's willing to stop what he's doing to take your call. It's amazing.
But you might say, how do I know this is true? Or how do I know that this is true for me? What you're asking really is a question of assurance. Like, how can I be sure of these things? And Paul goes on to list three proofs. Three proofs that you can be sure that this is true and it's true for you. The first proof is found in verse 5. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You ask, God's love for us or his, like, a love for him? Like, what is this love that God pours into our hearts? Is it the love that he has for us or, like, a love that we should have for him? And I think the answer to that question is yes. It's kind of both. When the Holy Spirit is poured into your heart, you feel yourself to be a beloved son and daughter of God. When this love is poured into your heart, when the Holy Spirit pours like God's love into your heart, you recognize God, the maker of the universe, as your heavenly father. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the love relationship that the father has for the son. Sort of this eternal love that God the Father has had for God the Son. Like the Spirit is the spirit of that love relationship. And what he does when he comes into our life is he draws us into that love relationship. Like we get to participate. I mean, this is like heady stuff, but like we get to participate. We find ourselves in this love that's been going on forever. Right? Calling God Father was something unique to Jesus at the time. Like, Nobody else was talking about God that way. No one was praying to God that way. Calling the maker of the universe, Daddy, Abba, right? Papa. People thought that was scandalous. People thought that was blasphemous. But when you're a Christian, you begin, like Jesus not only teaches you to pray that way, like you begin to be like, that's right, like God, the one who made, like the one who spoke the stars into existence, that's my dad. Like he's my father. Like I can, I can come to him as his kid. Paul lays this out in three chapters later in, in Romans chapter eight. He says, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What Paul is saying is that if you are praying God as father, it's not because you're cool. It's not because you're clever. People don't normally talk to the maker of the universe this way. If you know and recognize God as father, it's, it's only because God has poured his love into you. The Holy Spirit has been poured into your heart. Because you wouldn't pray that way. You wouldn't talk that way otherwise. Like, that's a gift. It's proof It's proof that what we're talking about, it's for you. This is an important thing. Like feelings are important. Recognizing like God is my dad and I'm his child and he loves me. Like it's God wants you to experience that. I want you to experience that. But the problem with feelings is that they sometimes go. Like they come and go. Our experience of that can be high and low at various different times. Like there are some days where you're like, I know this deep in my bones. And then other days you're like, I'm not so sure. Which is why God gives us not just one proof, he gives us three. 
And it's why he doesn't just give us feelings. He gives us facts. And I want you to look at verses 6 through 8 with me. Because it says here, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's proof number two. It's something objective. Something that is not rooted in sort of your subjective feelings, but is rooted in time, space, history. Something that God has proven for all the world to see. Like this has happened and nothing will ever be able to erase this fact. While we were still weak, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can't argue with this. This happened while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want proof that God loves you? You want proof that he wants to be reconciled to you? You want proof that you can be at peace with God, that you can be regarded as a son and daughter of the king? Don't just look inside. Look outside. Look at the cross. The cross proves beyond any doubt that this is true, and it's true for you. God gave up everything. He gave himself for us when we did not deserve it. Paul's logic in verse 7 sounds like this. Maybe somebody loving would die for somebody good. But somebody evil? Come on now. Die for an enemy? No. But that is what God did. He gave up everything for you. And here's how one theologian, John Stott, puts it. He says, the more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love seems to be. And measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolute. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything, his very self, to those who deserve nothing from him except judgment. The cross is the single action which completely proves that God loves us. Paul is saying you can know objectively and beyond all doubt that God loves you, even if your feelings or the appearance of your life circumstances might prompt you to wonder. The cross proves it. God loves me. He's for me. He wants to be reconciled to me. This is, a, like I said, it's a, re, it's a proof that's not rooted in your feelings. It's a, it's a proof that's rooted in facts, the facts of history. I wondered how best to illustrate this for you, because sometimes I'm prone to wonder. Sometimes I myself am prone to doubt. Like, is this true? Does God really, like, God loves the world, but does he love me? <laughs> it reminded me of this silly 2004 movie starring Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler. It's 51st Dates. I don't know if you've seen it. Julia's seen it. She loves it. I think it's okay. I, I think the movie's... Like, I, I don't know if I can fully, like, endorse the movie, but here's the thing. I, I agree with Julia. The premise is actually really cool. So if you've never seen it, let me just explain, like, what the idea behind the movie is because it's actually pretty great. Drew Barrymore plays this, the role of Lucy. And Lucy gets in a car wreck. And after the accident, she has a debilitating form of, am, of amnesia. She remembers her life right up to the night before the accident, but she forgets any new experiences that happens after it. Like, Like whatever happened to her that day, she forgets when she goes to sleep. 
But she meets this guy, Henry, who's played by Adam Sandler. And when they meet, they have a great first date. But when he meets her like the next day, she's forgotten it completely. Like she has no recollection of ever meeting him. She has no recollection of the date. Hence the name of the movie, like 50 First Dates. Okay? Well, Henry's starting to fall in love with Lucy. But it's hard to build a relationship when memories come and they go. So he comes up with a strategy. Henry creates a video that she can watch, that Lucy can watch every day that reminds them or that reminds her of who she is and what's happened to her. And a video that reminds her of like how they've met and what they've done. And because of this video, he's able to take this relationship that's out of the the realms of feelings, which come and go every different day. And he's able to sort of now be able to um, take this relationship into the realm of facts and of their history. And this is who you are. And this is who I am. And this is what we've done together. And this is like what our relationship's about. And they're able to build it on from there. And when I think of this movie, I think about the cross. Because it's this thing that reminds me over and over again that God is good and that he loves me. Me, whose feelings can come and go just like Lucy's memories can come and go. Like me, who's like prone to doubt and prone to forget. Who are you again? <laughs> like, God is like taking me back to the tape. Look, taking me back to the cross. Look, here's ultimate proof. I died for you. I died for you. Not when you were good, not when you deserved it. I died for you when you were not righteous, when you didn't deserve it, because that's how much I love you. But there's one more proof that Paul cites in this section of letter, right? And it's contained in verses 9 through 11. You heard about the first proof, like he's poured his love into our heart. We've heard about the second, like him taking us to the cross again and again and again. But here's the third. And here's how I would summarize what's here in verses 9 to 11. It's like it, what these verses are saying is that having done the heavy lifting of like saving us, Christ is not going to give up on you now. Like if Christ loved and died for you when you were his enemy, how much more is he going to love you now that you're his friend? If God's going, if he's willing to go through all that he went through, like leaving heaven for earth, taking on human flesh, living a perfect life, dying for you, being resurrected for you. If he's willing to go through all of this for you, when you were his enemy, mind you, do you think he's going to give up on you now? Like you who are now at peace with him, there's no way he's going to do that. Jesus is going to finish what he started. You can be sure of this. I was thinking of a personal example that kind of gets at this kind of idea. A couple of years ago, Megan and I sold our house on Green Street to buy the house on Prospect Street. Selling a house is a lot of work. Like, you got to show the house. You got to, like, do a bunch of paperwork. You got to do a bunch of negotiations. Like, there's a lot of, like, moving pieces, we put the house for sale, uh, the house on Green Street for sale in June of 2000. We closed in the house in August. 
And the week before the closing, before everything was finalized, we discovered that we had one electrical permit that needed to be closed with the city of Burlington before we could actually legally sell this house. So like we've done all of the heavy lifting, we've done all of this work, there's now this like one little permit that needs to be closed. And what that meant is we had to bring in a, like an electrician to just kind of like do electrical work, to kind of like put a new box in. Do you think, here's the thing, do you think that having gone through all of the hard work of getting the household to this very point, that we would let an electrical permit stop us from selling our house? Of course not. <laughs> like, of course not. And by that same logic, do you think God, who's gone through all of this hard work to get you like reconciled, that he's now like there's anything that's going to stop him from like actually finishing the job and making it like possible for you to actually live with him forever? Do you think he's actually going to let you slip through the cracks? It's impossible. It's absurd to even think that. And that's your third proof. (laughs) Right? He's not going to let you go. He's not going to go through all of that hard work just to have you slip through the cracks or slip through his fingers. He has got his hand on you. I have to do it. There's, there's one other picture that I want to give you. It's the one Julie and I had a good coffee, and we, we talked about this too. Okay? So when, I, when, I, when I pick up my daughter, Willa, when I pick up my daughter, Willa, and I hold her by the hands and I start to spin her like this. And she starts to squeal with the light as she like, is like, like being twirled through the air. And her legs have lifted off the floor and we're kind of dancing like that. And I'm spinning her around and she's looking at me and I'm looking at her and she's smiling. What is keeping her from flying out into outer space and seriously hurting herself? Is it... Is what is preventing her from like flying into outer space how tight she's holding to me? Or is it how tight I'm holding on to her? The answer is obvious. God has got a grip on you. What saves you, what prevents you from flying off into outer space is not how tight you hold to him, but how tight he holds to you. That is your hope. That is your surety. And what this is saying is I'm not letting you go. You're my kid, whom I love. We're at peace now. His son died for you. That spirit of sonship has been given to you. And there is nothing he won't do to keep you in his arms forever. This is good, good news. I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll go into discussion. Father, thanks for giving us this word, this truth. If you hadn't said it, we would doubt it. But your word is sure, and you've proven it in Jesus. So take this this word that lands in our life like a seed. Put it deep inside. Put it in our heart. Let it take root there. Let it grow strong. Let it bear fruit. And I pray that this conversation that our friends are going to have now would be part of that implanting and deepening. So would you bless their conversation together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.